A horrific murder ripped through a Queens neighborhood, and the killer was finally caught. After a failed defense, the murderer was sentenced to death, but that was not the end for him or for Kitty's story. The case would go down in history, but did the newspapers and textbooks get the facts right? This story's legacy was more than what was initially reported. This week's episode is The Murder of Kitty Genovese, Part 2. Up, bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. We got a very fascinating DM from a listener who said they were inspired to go and help someone after listening to this, that they heard a scream and they thought it was kids playing, but then when they went outside, it happened to be a, an injured kid on a bicycle that they were able to help. We're changing lives, Heather. <laughs> I said you saved a life, at least a leg. So <laughs> that's so nice, though. I mean, if yeah. you've fallen off a bicycle and broken a limb, that's an intense... That is an intense crash. Crash, but yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if it's safe, um, in that case, it was daylight and... Uh, a kid, but you never know. But it's always good to check and double check. And uh, if that could be part of the legacy, I think this would be a good mm-hmm. it's a good story then. It's a good legacy to have for Kitty. If I see an accident, if something's going on in the neighborhood that looks nefarious, by that I mean um, like one day I was driving home in the alley behind my house, like, you know, where all you pull in to go to the driveways. And there was this guy that pulled over in a fit of rage and his girlfriend got out and started running and he got out and just started beating her and i laid on my horn nice and it did nothing and then i was just sitting there like what do i do like and i was i was scared because he's beating the shit out of this lady i'm like he could easily come over to my car i was like 10 feet from them Mm -hmm. so i get on the phone and i call the cops and I get to my house and I go in and I get Tommy and I come out and we're standing there and then some other people drive by and they stop and they're like, have y'all called the cops? And I said, yeah, I'll just tell you right now, Dallas police never showed up and I called them three times. <laughs> I mean, you were with me at my old house in our old studio and we heard those shots. Mm-hmm. As you said, the shots sounded intentional. That's it. And I told you to call the cops. And we did. Well, I lived right by a creek in a park and there was always gunfire going off on there. I don't know if it was, uh, you know, kids shooting off and, you know, hitting the sign or executions. I don't know what it was. It was horrific, though, because it was frequent mm-hmm. gunshots. And uh, you said, call the police. And they said, well, who's been shot? And I said, why? Well, it's dark over there. And I'm, I don't believe I'm going to run towards the gunfire. Nah. And they said, well, how do we know if we should go out there? I said, that's fair. Dallas is a big city. A lot of shit <laughs> guess, going on, apparently. Guess but, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, but they did sound intentional. That was a good one on your part. But yeah, I mean, it's never the we'll talk about it at the end of you know bystander intervention. There's several different ways to mm-hmm. safely do it. And one of them is calling the police. Another one's you know, distracting or documenting something even can be helpful. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully the legacy, you know, as we see the world that we're in today where there's, you know, racist violence in the street, street harassment, what you saw, domestic violence in the street. There are safe ways to try to intervene. Um, and hopefully, uh, even if the story for Kitty wasn't that nobody intervened, if it's even that legend is out there, if I'm going to do something myself, then 
Maybe that'll help somebody. Mm -hmm. Help the kid with the broken leg at the very least. There you go. Yes, if you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that because this one's going to make a lot more sense if you do. This has been eye-opening. Even people that have DM'd us and said, I knew that this story wasn't what we were taught in school, but I had no idea just how poorly it was initially reported and everything. And some people, someone messaged and said, I was literally talking about this in a college class last week, and it's still taught that way. Yes. And I will. I would like to, uh, just because I got your back, we're on the same team here. Um, everybody who DM Christy talking shit about the Lululemon murders, in the sources, I was going back through and just making sure our show notes are all nice and pretty and formatted. One of the sources is from the Washington Post, and it literally says, Lululemon murder, it is an example of the bystander effect made famous by Kitty Genefees. To the, so to this day, I mean, mm-hmm. a couple, it was still being misreported by a reasonably, you know, uh, legitimate source, the Washington Post. And it didn't say the bystander effect, which has been widely debunked. It no. was like, this is an example of the bystander mm-hmm. effect. So in everybody's face. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but I just, I want to say you did not make that up wholly. I mean, like that was applied to the Jana Murray case. Mm-hmm. That was... Not just something that, you know, we on our own just said, oh, my gosh, this is just like that. Mm-hmm. Experts were saying because the Apple Store employees weren't calling. So I think that's fascinating. And it shows just how widely misconstrued the Kitty Genovese case was because it, I mean, as recently as five or six years ago was yeah. still being cited incorrectly. Yes. A listener said when she was learning about it in class, she told the teacher, you know, that's actually not how how it was. Yeah. And the teacher even said... Well, it's still a good example. And that's kind of the attitude that we'll see that the editor for the New York Times mm-hmm. had, too, that, yeah, it might not have been factual, but it, it served the greater good of proving a point to everyone. And that's oh, yes. that's all that matters. And that's not what matters at all. It completely changed the trajectory of the victim's family's life, the mm-hmm. perpetrator's family's life, not to mention... All of those residents that, you know, were were claimed to have done nothing and, and mm-hmm. some even had to move away because the community turned on, on them and everything. So yeah, don't think you can just take whatever liberties you want because you think that it's going to uh, serve a greater purpose because mm. you never know who you're going to hurt along the way by also, doing that. As we said in the last one, she's a human being mm-hmm. and her story deserves to be told mm-hmm. and not reduced to... That one girl that was murdered in the bystander effect. Anyway, not Mm -hmm. she was a whole person. She had a whole life and love and vigor in her. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Two days after Kitty Genovese had been laid to rest on March 16th, 1964 in New Canaan, Connecticut, police responded to a burglary at a home in East Elmhurst, a neighborhood in Queens. A neighbor had watched as a man carried a TV from the property. According to the Pelinero book, when the neighbor approached the perpetrator, the burglar told the neighbor he was helping the homeowners move. Suspicious, the neighbor asked a second neighbor if the family was moving. They weren't. While one neighbor called the police, the other disabled the burglar's car, a Chevrolet Corvair, by removing the distributor cap. They said he was pretty brazen. It was just like 11 a.m. It's like in the middle of the day, just walking into a house, just stealing televisions. If you're going to stab someone on the streets and people are yelling at you to stop and that doesn't stop you i think you give zero fucks about what Mm -hmm. happens you go into it with 
uh, your desire to kill or to do wrong far outweighs the chance that you might get caught. Also, it's a good cover because you look like you belong there. Like, I'm just helping him move. Mm-hmm. And to, and the neighbor kind of said, I kind of believed him. And then I thought, I know those people. They're not going anywhere. Yeah, because if you speak with confidence like that, it's hard for someone else to question it. Oh, yeah. Police arrived and arrested 29-year-old Winston Mosley. At the station when police questioned Mosley, he admitted to the burglary and earlier ones as well. Because he was so forthcoming with the information, police wondered if he had attacked a string of women in the same area over the previous months. Mosley admitted to the attacks, saying, I guess I did do that, according to the Pelinero book. The tone in which he speaks about these nefarious things he's done, oh, yeah. you might as well be asking him what the weather's like. Yes, they said he switched topics so freakishly. Like, it was just, yeah, I stole televisions. Oh, yes, I groped them and I stabbed that woman. Um, and then I, what I did with the stolen TVs was take them to my dad's repair shop and then we would sell them as refurbished TVs. And everyone's like, we're, we were just talking about the murders you did. Oh, yeah, I did those too. Yeah. It's very unnerving. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's sociopathic behavior. Remembering witnesses describing a white Corvair involved in Kitty Genovese's murder, the arresting officers contacted the homicide detectives working Kitty's case. They arrived at the station around 5.30 p.m. to question Mosley. They asked about cuts on his hands, which Mosley tried blaming on housework. The detective pressed Mosley, insisting the cuts came from stabbing Kitty Genovese. According to the Pelinero book, Mosley then answered, Okay, I killed her. Bang. Yeah, and I think the detectives at first are kind of looking at each other thinking, is he just saying that? Because it was mm -hmm. so nonchalant just to try to let us, so, so we'll let him leave. Mm-hmm. In an interview with police shown in the documentary The Witness, Mosley told officers about the night of March 12th. I didn't care which girl. I was going to kill her. Mosley gave a detailed description of both attacks on Kitty, then told police where to find Kitty's wallet, in the bushes outside his job. In a later meeting with his attorneys, Mosley would also accurately describe intimate details about Kitty's body. He also had taken the hunting knife home and put it in his toolbox in his shed, and they later retrieved it after getting a search warrant, just to disabuse anyone of the notion that he may have wrongfully confessed. The The wallet was in front of his assigned parking spot at his job, very far away. There is no doubt that he is, I mean, we'll, yeah, later we'll see, but there's not one shred of doubt that this is the person that did this. Oh, yes. The Queens County prosecutor, Charles Scholar, described Mosley as ice, telling Bill Genovese nothing fazed him at all. Mosley's defense attorney described him as a bright and manipulative individual with an IQ of 135. Yeah, he was just, ah, uh, uh, just a, it's, it's more than even just having like a flat effect. It's just. I think he was just so brazen and confident that he wouldn't get caught. I don't even think he cared if he did get caught, it that he was strange. able to go about these things and with such confidence, like stealing the TV and stuff. Because if you just walk into a room and you act like you own the place, then mm -hmm. people are going to assume you do. So the Pelinero book goes totally into his childhood and backstory, and his parents had a lot of fights. 
his mom would abandon him and be gone for six months to multiple years at a time. And his dad would always say, We're, the family's going to get back together. It's going to get back together. So I wonder if at some point you, he shut off his emotions, just like mm-hmm. uh, it's never going to happen. And then he had a first wife before the one that he's with now. They had two kids. And they're in the Pelinero book, a description, there's a description of a fight they had where she pulled a gun on him and was like, I'm going to shoot you. And he said, okay, I hope you do. I want you to do it. And that she then did not, you know, she put the gun down. But that attitude of, yeah, I don't care if you kill me, whatever, it's fine. It's Mm -hmm. it's so strange. And so then the two of them split up and then he ended up with his current wife, had two more kids and five dogs, which is a lot of dogs uh, if you're also busy overnight uh, murdering people. Mm -hmm. His wife worked overnights. He worked days. So they would kind of take shifts, and but and his was, mother-in-law lived with him too, and oh, yeah. helped out with the child child so care. So it's like he's skipping out in the middle of the night to go commit these crimes. But he did say he said, "Oh, February that year, I decided I wanted to kill somebody, so I woke up and uh, went out hunting." Yeah, he said that it got into his brain the way if anyone had an idea about something, it would just get into his head, and he couldn't think about anything else, no matter mm-hmm. what he was doing. It was always in his head, and he knew that it would never, he would never stop thinking about it until he did it. Mm-hmm. And that's something in other cases we've covered that we've seen too with serial killers that once that it starts tickling their brain that mm-hmm. I'm going to do this, you know, it becomes this obsession and eventually this urge that they claim they can't control mm-hmm. and they have to act on it in order to quiet their mind again. Oh, yeah. And that's what happened here, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. He just said, I I just had to hunt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he ha- felt like he had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's that saying? The most dangerous man is the man with nothing to lose or something mm-hmm. like that? Because, you know, if you're like, yeah, go ahead and kill me. I don't I don't care. Like, yeah. what do you threaten anybody with that yeah, has that no, attitude? There's nothing you can. Mm-hmm. Mosley was indicted for the murder of Kenny Genovese on Monday, March 23, 1964, and arraigned the next day. The court appointed prominent defense attorney Sidney Sparrow to defend the killer. According to the Palinero book, Sparrow met with his client, who calmly told the lawyer exactly how the crime went down. Sparrow wrote in his notes, He may be crazy, but he sure is truthful. You're not a defense attorney. But if you were, how... Do you hear these things from a client? And then, I mean, I get it. I know what you're going to say. If you up, it's because you are there to uphold your end of the of the deal to your client, and you're working for your client. I just can't imagine sitting across from this monster and feeling like I wanted to do anything to help them. Well, two parts. One is your job as a defense attorney is make sure the state meets its burden of proof, that it does its job of actually proving it. Because we don't want, if for some reason he happened to be innocent, sure, innocent people to get thrown in jail. When you have a client like this, who Hannibal Lecter style stares you in the face and describes horrific details to you, then I think what he's, what Sidney Sparrow says is he may be crazy, and that's the defense they're going to go with. Mm-hmm. You, you tell yourself, my client is mentally... incompetent there he didn't he was not able to know right from wrong because a sane person would not 
openly tell me this, openly tell his wife this, openly testify it. Again, I would like to disabuse anyone of the notion that he didn't do it. He told the same consistent story, the same details to five or six parties, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think as a defense attorney, you would hear that, hear, see his affect, see his behavior, look him in the eye and go, he needs mental help and I need to ensure that he gets that. That's on the one hand. This is Heather giving someone the most benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, prominent defense attorney. This guy was well known. And how do you get even more known than you already are is to take the case of the famous guy that did this crime yeah. that's literally in newspapers and magazines across the country. And it's 2021 and we're still saying the name Sidney Sparrow. Yeah, that's true. So that is the me, you know, least common denominator. Sometimes people want to do the case. I'm thinking about the gentleman who took the civil case in the Jenny Jones, uh, Scott mm-hmm. Amador case, where his opening statement was like two and a half hours long on court TV. Is yes, that an effective yes. thing to do for your client? Maybe. Is it a super good commercial for you? All mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. So we're also lawyers are humans, although some people may think we're demons, but lawyers are <laughs> <laughs> lawyers are human beings and self human beings are self-serving, right? Mm-hmm. So court appointed, you're not making that much money, right? On this, you don't there's a statutory limit on how many dollars an mm-hmm. hour you can charge as a defense attorney when you're court appointed. So it's not like he was going to make, you know, buku bucks being appointed, but you will have your name all over the papers sure. and the history books. That's a good point. It's a, uh, and I guess if you're him, although it didn't work out in his favor, you want someone like that. Mm-hmm. Two weeks before he happened to see Kitty walking to her car that night. Mosley had killed another woman, 24-year-old Annie Mae Johnson. As Annie Mae stepped out of her car late at night, Mosley shot her four times in the stomach with a twenty-two rifle, then rolled her body into the house and raped her while her family slept upstairs. After he finished, he stole several things from the home. Then, because Annie Mae was still alive, he set the house on fire, burning her body in the process. Pretty horrific crime. Yes. Very, oh. And to... Oh, it, what one thing that got me that we talked about in the last one with Kitty and this, this one especially, she's she's in her home. You think mm-hmm. you're safe in your home? You know your family's upstairs sleeping, and you can't scream out for anyone to help you. Mm-hmm. Kitty is she can see her friend's door. She's in her apartment building, you know, mm-hmm. and like oh, he's not going to come back. I, I I'm finally here. They're both of these women are in places where these things they should have it should have been safety once they got to these places. And instead, it's where the worst part of it happens. She was on her porch. Annie Mae was on her porch putting the key in when he he comes up behind her and she Mm -hmm. turns and he puts the 22 rifle in her stomach and shoots her and then shoots her again while she's crouched down. Then he drug her body out to the snow and he said, I was going to rape her there in the snow, but it was a little too cold for me. So -hmm. then I rolled her back inside and I did it inside. Luckily, the family survived. The fire didn't take everybody out. But again, just lest lest anyone wonder if he really did it. He was able to sketch out the the layout of this woman's house, which he would otherwise have no reason to know how Mm -hmm. her living room, exactly how her living was laid out, exactly this placement of the bedrooms upstairs. He stole $100 cash from an empty guest room that the husband said, well, I checked and $100 cash cash was missing from the guest room. So, and then he was able to say, I put three pieces of you know newspaper to set on fire in this corner this corner this corner and that's where the uh firefighters had said that's where the fires started so again he was able to provide super 
specific details that nobody but the murderer right. would know. Yes, details that were not released in any kind of newspaper or anything Correct. out. He And they do that intentionally. So when someone does confess, they can say, can you tell us something that only the murderer would know? Oh, here's uh 25 things that only yeah. I know because I did it. Imagine those, her freaking family. Mm-hmm. You, all of a sudden your fire alarm goes off and you run downstairs thinking already that you're about to see a fire and then that you come upon that scene Mm -hmm. jesus christ later betty mosley visited her husband in jail he confessed to her that he murdered kenny genovese he also confessed to the killing of annie mae johnson initially believed by police to be a stabbing mostly informed authorities that he had shot the woman a second autopsy proved that the first was wrong and mosley's account was right yeah, the coroner thought it was ice pick stabs, and Mosley said, oh, I killed Annie Mae Johnson, I shot her, and they said, well, now we know he's lying. He probably didn't kill Kenny Genovese. He's probably making it all up. He's one of those perverts that just likes to admit to crimes, and he said, go dig her up. I'm right, and they said, well, this is like a serious deal to exhume a body that's super invasive, and they did it, and they went back and found the 22 bullets inside of her, but you know, because it's a 22, they hadn't had exit wounds, so that's why they thought they were stabs. Again, only something he would know. Yes. I mean, I don't, I didn't read anything that says anyone argues that he wasn't the person responsible. He was pretty forthcoming with the information that he did these things. Later, he says that he didn't do it. No, yes. Later, he does. But no one, no one believes that. Yeah. Somebody believes it. You think, oh, yeah, that's true. His, his kids believe it. But you tell yourself what you need to tell yourself to get by in life. Yeah. Mosley also confessed to the rape and murder of 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who he stabbed to death in her parents' home in the Springfield Gardens neighborhood of Queens in July of 1963. His testimony at the trial of 18-year-old Alvin Mitchell, who had been arrested for the crime after allegedly falsely confessing under duress, resulted in a hung jury. Despite Mosley giving step-by-step details of how he murdered the young girl, Mitchell was eventually convicted in a second trial. That is wild. Yeah. yeah. So the the Alvin Mitchell lived in the same area as her and they quickly the cops quickly picked him up and it was according to him and his attorney a false confession thing. He was physically abused by the cops during the interrogation. They wouldn't let him leave and like so many other times that's happened he finally just said yes to get to get out of it and then stood by that the entire time that mm-hmm. I did not do this. This mm-hmm. I was forced into this. Continued saying that. I think they said they um he was on the witness stand for two and a half hours during the trial and, you know, was continued to say I I had nothing to do with this. They even had Mosley come and testify saying I did do it. Mm-hmm. And it resulted in a hung jury, but then later they convicted him. Yeah. That's even though Mosley admitted to doing it. Step by step. And also had said, oh, I went and I got a kitchen knife. I used a steak knife. And they had told uh, Alvin, they had, you know, put it the words in his mouth that he had used some scissors from her room and that and I guess took it with him or whatever. And so it's like the back then the forensic evidence was not awesome. But that's horrifying and not shocking that they would wrongfully convict someone uh, when they're just trying to get somebody. I think it was kind of uh, for the police and the da was shameful that they got the wrong person and they did not want to be wrong yeah and the jury that convicted him said we just couldn't get past that confession 
you know, not as much back then was known about false confessions. And I think when you hear someone confessing to such a heinous crime as a jury member, you might not be able to understand why you would ever say you did that if you didn't. So they just they couldn't they couldn't get past it. And again, she's in her house sleeping Mm -hmm. in her bed. Mm -hmm. He said he walked upstairs past a room with two people sleeping and then saw her sleep in her bed and he approached her and she started to scream and he put his hand over her mouth and and stabbed her mm-hmm. and sexually assaulted her yeah he was uh he was a monster i mean true just, true monster because he would he could creep too that mm-hmm. he was able to go in all and the house in Annie Mae Johnson's house people were asleep and he was mm-hmm. able to creep between the bedrooms it's kind of golden state killery to me mhm mhm Winston Mosley's trial for the murder of Kenny Genovese began on June 8, 1964, in a courthouse in Queens near the site of the attack. The defense's argument was that Mosley was not guilty by reason of insanity, despite the presiding judge refusing to allow psychiatric testimony, according to the Washington Post. In the documentary The Witness, Bill Genovese, Kitty's brother, recalls how the family couldn't bear to attend the trial. Prosecutors struggled with what witnesses to call because some witnesses, like Carl Ross, clearly saw Kitty being attacked but failed to act, prosecutors worried it may alienate the jury. In the end, they chose to call Samuel Koshkin from the West Virginia apartments who had heard Kitty's screams, and Sophia Farrar, who held Kitty as she died. Yeah, it's not a good look uh, from the prosecutor's standpoint to call Carl Ross, because he does not come off great at all. He comes off as... no. Especially if Winston Mosley goes, oh, yeah, uh, I saw a door above mm-hmm. me open five times and nobody came out. I made eye contact with the guy who yeah. lived at the top stairs and he just closed his door and, and went back to it. Yeah, exactly. It's not that's not who you want to understand. And especially there was a couple other people across the street that had seen things even clearer and didn't at do the anything. Mowbray, yeah. Yeah. And they were like, eh, we're, it's cool. Let's just we'll leave him off the list. That's smart. Mosley testified on his own behalf and laid out in chilling, calm detail how he hunted and killed Kitty that night. Despite his plea for not guilty by reason of insanity, Winston Mosley was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. At the time, New York still used the electric chair. How do you feel about him being put on the stand from the defense's point of view? Was that a good call? I think they did it because they wanted to show I think as I'm sure for Sydney Sparrow, if you're again, you're sitting across this person who is chillingly calm, mm-hmm. telling you gruesome details that you're at no point where they saying he didn't do this. They were yeah. it's an affirmative defense. They're saying he did this, but he did it because he is traumatized. He is completely, you know, insane back then, whatever word mm-hmm. they wanted to use, you know. And I think they talked a little bit about trauma that he had previously had and, you know, questioned him about that as well. And so you have to, you know, let the jury see that for themselves, right? If there's, if you're saying this person is so insane that he couldn't not do what he did and he's not culpable for what he did, they have to see it for themselves. Because as a juror, you're like, yeah, right. I'm not going to, you, that's, that's not reasonable. He has a wife and kids and he has a job. Mm-hmm. But then when you it, it makes it almost more chilling that he's able he to have this- a wife and a kid and jobs and can do this and have two separate lives. Dexter yeah. style. Yes. Yes. And they talked about how he had like 
um, he became withdrawn from Betty and that he like repeatedly washed his hands and that he was kind of like nervous. But that doesn't mean you're going to kill someone. But I think whatever they could to try to say he was abnormal, he was different, he was traumatized, he was, you know, he couldn't help himself. He was it was a compulsion. He had to Mm -hmm. do it. I think that, you know, you have to try to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So why, as a judge, would you not allow psychiatric evaluations to be presented? Um, they, I think it would depend on um, what they, if they were going to submit them as an expert or as, I mean, surely they would. And this would all have to do with whatever uh, the rules of evidence were way, way back in um, New York, back in the 60s. Sometimes judges were against the not guilty by reason of insanity, again, because people think, oh, they're making it up. They're pretending to be, Mm -hmm. you know, crazy or they're pretending to act, you know. But I don't think that's a really. It's a pretty big it's a pretty bold move to put your client on the stand and have him testify calmly that he is. Uh, calmly everything that he did especially in a case like this which is extremely extremely gruesome yeah Yeah. well i read that because this judge was anti-death penalty Mm -hmm. that he some speculate he intentionally threw in some loopholes into the proceedings so that sparrow could later appeal and if he did get the death penalty, then it could be reduced. And that makes sense. And it may be why he let some information about the insanity in at trial, but not at sentencing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As the verdict was read, the courtroom burst into cheers. Judge Sapiro, who presided over the case, did not believe in capital punishment. However, he recognized this case was different, saying, I must say, I feel this may be improper when I see this monster. I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch on him myself, according to the New York Times. Mosley's attorneys appealed his sentence in 1967, arguing that evidence of his insanity should have been used at sentencing. He was successful, and the court reduced his sentence from the death penalty to life in prison. On June 1, 1967, the Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction, but set aside the sentence because the trial court had barred defense attorney Sparrow from recalling two psychiatrists to testify on Mosley's behalf during the sentencing phase. Yeah, and he, and then I think it was that uh, 1966 is when New York officially, maybe it was 1965, the New York officially got rid of the death penalty and then the governor went through and commuted everybody's sentence anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but So in the end, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been, he wouldn't have gotten the chair either way yeah i don't think he would have uh you know he he wasn't gonna get uh, executed mm-hmm. the following year in 1968 winston mosley escaped from detention at attica correctional facility while being transported to a hospital in buffalo for treatment of a self-inflicted injury according to the new york times he was on the lam for four days during which the fbi launched a manhunt before being recaptured he sexually assaulted two women on separate occasions at gunpoint and broke into multiple homes. When the FBI finally caught up with him, he was armed and holding several people hostage. FBI agent Neil Welch said in the witness that he found Mosley dangerous, but Welch said he felt comfortable talking to him, which led to his apprehension. For these crimes, Mosley received two 15-year terms to run concurrently with his life sentence. According to the Pelinero book, 
mostly told reporters at the time that if given the opportunity, he would try to escape again. In the uh, book, that, and he, he wrote a book, Neil Welch wrote a book as well, but he, so, oh, Mosley was on a spree. I mean, he he walked into one house, he assaulted the maid, mm-hmm. and then once he escaped from that house, he ditched the car, and then he ran into a house where a woman and her friend and the woman had a baby were hanging out. It was before, really, the announcement was that there was a person on the loose, and they said that he wanted to talk. They mm-hmm. said he wanted to sit down and have a sandwich and chat with them, and they talked about God and life and the world and he said i think if i'd gone to college i wouldn't have done any of this and and they had no idea who he was no they knew who he was he had they a gun did? yeah he had a gun he said i'm on the run and i'm gonna kill you oh. uh, don't move and the phone rang uh and it was her friend going hey there's a murderer on the loose mm. so don't let anybody in the house and the friend of course has got a gun to her ribs goes mm-hmm. okay thanks thanks for the call and it was the so the homeowner with her baby, and she took the baby in the other room thinking, okay, well, if he kills me, at least the baby won't get killed. And then the friend said, I got to go get my kids from daycare. And he said, you're not going anywhere. And she said, well, if I don't go pick my kids up, they know I'm at her house. They're just going to come here. So the jig's going to be up. Like, let me go ahead and leave. And then immediately call the police, which is what you should do. Yeah. And so then that's when uh, Neil Welch, he couldn't really get there in time. So he said he had to send somebody else. And they were keeping the woman from going back but then Mosley started getting Nancy and saying like where is she I'm going to kill your friend if you don't come back in so many minutes and then Welch went in and sat across from Mosley and he talks about it kind of in the witness as well that mm-hmm. you know Mosley's got a gun on him he's got a gun on Mosley and has to you know at the conclusion of the conversation says you know it's time to go in go with me and Mosley kind of took a deep breath and was like yeah you're right okay okay the whole thing Mosley knew he was he I mean it was orchestrated from the, the time he got yes because he put a spam metal spam container up his butt yeah. to cause internal bleeding so he would be sent to this hospital yeah I think he was walking down the hallway because he said he had said I'm never going to get out of Attica and then they were walking down the hallway and he punched the guard in the face and ran out the door mm. and can you imagine what I mean? I suppose I've never been no. in jail. To one, oh, I thought you were going to say a spam. That's thing what I'm saying. Up your Can you imagine yeah. shoving something up your ass? I makes if me it think meant I pol- was going to get out of jail. Yes, that's I what can. I'm saying. I've never been in jail, so I suppose yeah. yeah. Um, I I always think of Pulp Fiction when I think about. Uh, he kept the watch up his ass. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, so he punches the guard in the face and just takes off running. The problem was he'd never been to this area of New York. It's upstate, and so he's driving around aimlessly and getting lost and kind of knew he was, everybody was looking for him because it was such a high-profile case again. Mm-hmm. In 1977, Mosley obtained a degree in sociology while in jail. He was also published in the New York Times. In the editorial, he wrote, I've wished so many times that I could bring Kitty Genovese back to life. But also stated, The crime was tragic, but it did serve society, urging it as it did to come to the aid of its members in distress or danger. So even he is trying to take the stance that, yeah, it was heinous, but it served a greater good in the end. Fuck you. What is wrong with everybody? <laughs> God, this is a human person, not a uh-huh. symbol. And no. to be like, come on, he's trying to make himself a hero. Oh, yeah. 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 He's saying, I know that, I mean, because he, after he got his degree and everything, which, by the way, 
textbooks back then would have had this story in them psychology textbooks that Ugh. he's reading for his degree so he's arguably reading about the crime he committed in these textbooks i don't like that no but saying that he's reformed and he only wants to do good now and, and never wants to do bad again uh. do we believe that i i don't know whatever well, but mm. does it matter who cares but to act like you did the world a favor no. in the long run, get the fuck out of here. That is like retroactively trying to relabel it because what favor did he do by stabbing a 15-year-old Barbara mm-hmm. Kralik? What favor did he do by shooting and then committing necrophilia on Annie Mae Johnson, arguably? Mm-hmm. She could have been alive or dead. So d- d- don't try to put a hero hat on there at the end mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, I did uh, arguably it's... Everyone comes to everyone's aid now. No, no. no. You did it because you're sick. Yes. I mean, they tried to argue at trial that he had, you know, schizophrenia and everything. So he, whatever it was, either you are just a monster or he has some demonstrable mental defect. Either one, he was not out doing a heroic deed for no. society and the greater good. No, he wasn't a superhero saving the city of New York no. from future bad deeds no. by committing this one. No. Mosley appealed again in 1995, arguing that he was entitled to another trial, as his attorney at his trial back in 1964, Sidney Sparrow, had a conflict of interest because he once represented Kitty Genovese in a minor gambling issue in 1961, according to appellate documents. The court rejected this argument and found that Sparrow gave Mosley effective, competent, and capable counsel under difficult circumstances, according to the appellate opinion. And Sparrow told him. He knew at the time. Like, it's not like he hid it and he told the court and the court said, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He told he told Mosley and he was like, OK, that's fine. Yeah, that's it doesn't seem like that there's any conflict of interest there. But then, you know, you've been in jail for uh, however many years at that 30. point, And you're like, uh, anything that I can do to get me out is I'm I'm going to I'm going to backtrack on all my previous statements. Grasp at those straws. Mm-hmm. At the appeal, Susan Wakeman, Kitty's sister, said. We don't blame the people who were there that night and might have heard her crying. Only one person killed my sister, and he should die the way that she did. As reported by the New York Times, Bill Genovese added, The irony of being here today 30 years later is that maybe you begin to understand why no one wanted to get involved. I appreciate the sensitivity of constitutional law, but watching this proceeding here, I fear for the cynicism of the general populace. Yeah, it said that, I mean, you know, they hadn't been at any of the trial in 64, but all of the siblings and some of their wives and, and husbands were there for this one. And they sat in the front row and were a unified force. And they said, we are not going to let her be victimized again. We're going to mm-hmm. do whatever we can to keep this man in prison. And every time he comes up for parole, they they yeah. say no yeah He's, which uh, is their this, right before he died 18 times i think mm-hmm. he was rejected for mm-hmm. parole absolutely it's their right yes initially the media hadn't paid much attention to kitty's murder for most it was just another brutal killing in the big city that all changed after a.m rosenthal the city editor at the time for the new york times had lunch with michael j murphy the police commissioner Murphy told Rosenthal about Mosley's recent arrest and confessions to killing Annie Mae Johnson and Kitty Genovese. When Murphy mentioned that 38 witnesses listened and watched as Kitty was attacked multiple times and did nothing to help the woman, Rosenthal knew he had a front-page story. 
On Friday, March 27, 1964, two weeks after Kitty's murder, the New York Times published an article on its front page titled, 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call Police. The story's author, Martin Gansberg, a respected journalist, rushed the article to press and, it would later come out, took liberties with his reporting. Indeed, even the number of witnesses in the article's title is different than what is stated in the first paragraph, which reads, For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice, the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time, he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. So there's a lot wrong with that paragraph. Got some comments for you. Got some red lines, some yes. uh, some changes. Well, and years later, a pers- a resident of Kew Gardens, many years after this took place, who was doing acting as a historian for the complex, started looking into this because he said, well, we have to document this because this is the most famous thing that's ever happened here. And he did go through the article and basically corrected it for them. And, you know, it was for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens. And then in parentheses, this number has never been confirmed. Where did Mm -hmm. this number come from? You know, she uh, wasn't attacked three times. She was attacked twice. The person, multiple people called the cops, but says they weren't logged. And one witness called after she was dead. She died on the, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So she was still alive. So there was just so many Mm -hmm. gross inaccuracies and no one questioned it. No, I mean, mean, at the time they ended up with a spoon. Yes. It was from the times Rosenthal was, you know, kind of the king of, of the city as far as journalism went and nobody, nobody followed up. But then still, for years and years, nobody followed up. I mean, mm-hmm. even in Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, it's uh, is it super freaking? Did he write super freakonomics? I think it's just regular freakonomics. It's not super? Soup, that's Rick James's version. <laughs> super freaks at freakonomics is the Rick James version. It was either in The Tipping Point or freakonomics that he references it. So, I mean, you know, even then, a well-respected author mm-hmm. such as he, years and years later, still... I mean, like, everyone just kind of took it for what it was. Took it on face value. value, yeah. And especially when you go and you really break down the attack where it happened, it's physically impossible for one single Mm -hmm. person to see all of it happen or hear really all of it to happen. Um, And that's where that 38 number is obviously wrong because it's impossible. Unless they were walking in a crowd following and just ogling, which was not happening. But from where certain bedrooms were angled, they could only see partial. Some people literally just saw the car Mm -hmm. and just saw a guy in a hat get in the car and then get back out of the car in a different hat. And they thought, that's strange. But they, you know, it's also three in the morning. So a lot of people didn't see or they were awoken. So, yeah, you're right. It's There's a lot. There's a lot going on. But back then... Boy, that's old papers, though, wouldn't it? Oh, wouldn't you? yes. I'd mm-hmm. pick up a 37 who saw murder, didn't call police. Let's not lie. I would pick that article up. I'd pick up. it up today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, for sure. And you think, what is wrong with people? Oh, my gosh. And I think it also gives, if, I'm, if we're all being honest here, mm-hmm. gives you a sense of moral superiority because you tr- you like to think, I would have acted differently. Mm-hmm. Those people are monsters. Yes. I would not have done that. Inaccuracies aside, the story was a splash. Newspapers and magazines across the country picked it up, running follow-up pieces, asking, What kind of people are we? Emphasizing how neighbors allegedly hadn't cared about Kitty. 
The murder and alleged apathy of the Kew Garden residents came to symbolize the decline of American cities and the social responsibility of looking out for one another. This was the 60s. You know, the mid-60s, you're going from the June Cleaver, Sweetest Pie, 50s, early mm-hmm. 60s to more beatnik kind of generation. and all Vietnam, these, hippies. Yeah, yep. All these hippies smoking grass don't care about anything but themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, it fits this narrative that I think a lot of people wanted to push. And, and it doesn't even fit it. They falsified it to yes. fit the narrative that yes. people wanted to push. Psychologists and sociologists began to dissect what transpired that evening, trying to make sense out of something that seemed inconceivable. 38 witnesses to a murder, and not one so much as called the police. In 1968, based on the Genovese case and other experiments, social psychologists Bib Latine and John Darley coined the term the bystander effect as a way to explain the inaction of individuals in a crisis situation. According to Psychology Today, Latine and Darley proposed that two factors contributed to the bystander effect, diffusion of responsibility and social influence. Diffusion of responsibility means that the more onlookers present, the less likely an individual will feel a personal responsibility to intervene. Regarding social influence, people will observe how others are reacting and take their cues from them. I do think that's that was slightly present in the case when one of the onlookers said, I'm going to call the police, and his wife said, oh, 30 people must have called mm-hmm. by now. So you, that I think that is present again i don't think that the bystander effect totally doesn't exist you know i think we've seen in some cases that yeah they've done experiments but i think it's probably not as extreme in this case a lot of what they found back then has been debunked maybe but just um it wasn't like how they said it was there was clear cut it wasn't as clear cut as everyone said and there's been studies now that have been shown that it's actually the opposite and in extreme, like, dangerous situations, the more people are there, the more likely people are to mm-hmm. to help. Or if you feel – if an individual feels they're being watched uh, by members of a crowd, that they're more likely to behave in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like if someone – I saw an example of someone that um, is – pro-environment and, you know, if they feel like they're being watched, they're more likely to recycle. Oh, so, okay. Almost as, you know, if is it genuine? I don't know. But the more likely are, you are that you're being watched by your peers, the more likely you are to do something positive. It's not like on Clerks where they just leave the cash on the counter and he's like, honesty through paranoia. He said, people see a pile of money out, they assume they're being watched. They'll make the right change. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's people on TikTok that do that. There's this guy I follow oh, really? that, uh, well, he runs like a bodega in New York and he'll put, I saw one where he put... Um, AirPods behind like some ramen noodles on the the shelf and then this teenage boy comes in and he brings it up to the front and he's like somebody left these back there and all of it's filmed Aww. and the guy's like oh okay thanks and then it shows the camera shows that he puts it in the kid's bag when he's leaving the kid goes outside and he comes back in he's like oh you must have accidentally put these in my bag and the bodega owner's <laughs> like you know what you were honest so they're yours and the like- kid's like Thank you so much. And this the this bodega owner is known for doing that. He also, if people can't afford stuff, he'll let them just take it. And he'll do Aww. these things where he'll say to adults, but also kids will come in. He'll say, you got 30 seconds to get anything you want for free. Aww. But the most endearing part is they'll get some candy, but they'll get stuff they know 
their family needs like formula like, or yes diapers. milk and you know like bread and stuff it's not just like they're just getting like junk food and everything and it's, it's really sweet and then he usually gives them like an ipod or a scooter he always <laughs> goes it's really cool there's Humans a lot of good, good that happens on tiktok there it's really true. is there is it's true it's true it's like with willy wonka he gives back the candy at the end and mm-hmm. it's like you can really trust the kid at the at the end of the day it's the good one so mm-hmm. i love send me that tiktok that bow take i will i will I, I will uh i can't think of his name but i'll send it to you i'll put and, it in the show notes yeah we can put it in the show notes too mike wallace famous reporter said of the bystander effect mythos to a certain degree i think it was a media creation when bill genevieve asked in the witness why he thinks the story got so out of control Wallace replied, because it was taken seriously by the New York Times. Wallace attributed the Times and the story's author as having clout that swayed public opinion. It's true. It's That's very great, true. Great power comes great responsibility. People eat up what they say and they believe it. If the National Enquirer had put out that story, no one would have believed it. They would have thought it was all exaggerated and wouldn't have thought twice about it. But a publication like the New York Times putting something out, I mean, even now, they're one of the sources we use the most. Yeah. Washington yes. Post, New York Times, LA Times. I mean, any of the, the major publications, you trust that they have fact-checked everything and that you can report what they say as, as truth. It's true. And and you really don't realize that until you start to veer off into, uh, like when we were doing the QAnon episode, some of the sources, loose sources, mm-hmm. that you read, that even though the website sort of looks legitimate, you know, once you're reading it and you're able to synthesize information, you know, not everybody has that uh, time to do that. Not everybody has time to look at what they're reading or really analyze it and understand that it may not be reliable. So I think it's a big, a big issue when you have a giant, a media giant like this that is so often fact-checked and sourced and everything and that's people's all entire jobs that mm-hmm. that was um the issue that ronan farrow ran into with a lot of his stuff with the new yorker of like having anonymous sources that they're like we're not going to publish this unless we have we are sure 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 it's legitimate um and of course it was ronan farrow would never lie <laughs> <laughs> um but you know you ha- you run into that where you're and they you we want that we want that to mm-hmm. be a barrier we don't want it to that's the difference between journalism and the internet where anybody can say anything they want to say Mm-hmm. When questioned by Bill Genovese about the accuracy of the reported details of his sister's murder, A.M. Rosenthal replied, What was true? People all over the world were affected by it. Did it do anything? You bet your eye it did something, and I'm glad it did. Again. <laughs> it would have taken everything I had as Bill Genovese not to reach across that desk slap and shit. slap the shit out of him. He's admitting that, yeah, maybe it was... Uh, salacious or mis misreported, but it did something good. And there was another quote where he said, "38, 39, whatever." Ugh. You know, it's just this it's, is not Mister Mom. No, it's just it's this attitude of we're we're basically saying what what happened. We're just you know maybe we don't know all of it. And people said, "Where did you get this thirty eight witnesses?" He's like, "The police commissioner told me." But no one bothered. He was eating a meatball sub. Nobody bothered to check it out and, yeah, follow up and and anything. You know, they just wanted to rush it and get it out there before another paper picked it up. Morality question. Yeah. I think that I know what you're going to say. And I think, but as a society, shouldn't we care more about the truth than about the impact of the story? That's a good question. I would say... 
Yes. I, I would think so because there's no yes. lesson in a lie, right? Is there not? I mean, then it's an allegory, right? Or it's a fable or it's a, you know, it's a fairy tale. If you want to make something up, go make something up and teach people lessons. Be like Aesop, whatever the bunny does this to the mouse. I don't, I don't know enough about fables, but animal farm, right? Whatever. If you want to make up a fake story to teach a lesson, do that. But I think when you're a newspaper, yes, that your job is to tell the truth, yes, as it happened with the sources cited, and not just kind of get like a feel for it and like yeah. try to like change society. Uh, Maybe I'm the stickler. No, I absolutely agree that um, all journalists have is their integrity when it comes to their career. True, and if you just let that go by the wayside and you uh then you're not doing your job you shouldn't be a journalist you should be a fiction writer yeah so I'm saying you should be a fairy mm-hmm. tale go be the brothers grim yeah do that <laughs> what's the mouse taking care of the bunny i don't know i don't know enough about fables to cite <laughs> Is that a real one or did you just no, make that I got up halfway through making it up and then i got embarrassed because i didn't know any aesop's <laughs> fables because i didn't read it as a kid and it's a whole deal. i read grimm's but i don't remember aesop's uh, but we i were do a remember dr seuss family strictly <laughs> Dr. Seuss, Sesame Street, Richard Scary family over here. So. Oh, I love Sorry, all I those. No, your fancy fable. <laughs> In 2004, the New York Times published an article called Kitty, 40 Years Later, which reexamined its reporting from 1964. Still, the initial reported inaccuracies and subsequent psychological studies remain widely accepted as fact and continue to be taught in high schools and universities. In a further attempt to set the record straight, Kitty's brother, Bill Genovese, spent over 10 years working on a documentary released in 2016 called The Witness. As part of his research, Bill asked Winston Mosley to meet with him and discuss the murder. Winston refused, saying he was tired of being exploited, according to the documentary. I think it's control. I think it's a control move. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Tired of being exploited. Sorry, you victim. Yeah, wah, wah. Bill did get a chance to meet with one of Winston's sons, Reverend Stephen Mosley. The younger Mosley told Bill, If it had not been for the notoriety of this story, he'd have probably been paroled by now. Winston's son related what his dad told him of the crime, telling Bill, He said he just snapped out because there were some racial tensions going on back then, and your sister was using a lot of racial slurs at him, and he just lost it. That's what he told me. Remember in part one when I said Paris screamed over the television so much that I had to rewind it about four times? This is it. Again, he was cooking. (laughs) And I was taking notes on the documentary. And he's like, what? What was that? And he comes around and he's like, rewind that. That's bullshit. And it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that he told his son that, that blamed it on racial uh, issues. Yeah. I mean, I was enraged for Bill. And first of all, you watch this movie, The Witness and Bill Genovese. You just want to. Oh. I mean, be friends with him, hug yes. him. He's an incredible researcher, a passionate person, and mm-hmm. a compassionate and empathetic person to sit across the room from this man and have him say some bullshit. Mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and say it like that. But knowing all of the evidence that's laid out, like I said, at the beginning, disabuse yourself of the notion that this was caused by anything other than a person wanting to hunt people. Yes. and But from the the flip side... We had to calm down and have a discussion. And like you were saying, you tell yourself things to make yourself feel better. So it's easier to live with the fact that, oh, my gosh, my dad was victimized by this mean lady yelling slurs at him and just snapped out versus my dad is an actual monster that hunts humans. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, you have to, but 
it's still difficult to watch. But bless Bill for, and he is very compassionate while sitting there too. Yes, and yes, yes. I think at one point he even says, "This must have been really hard for you." You know, I mean, yeah. he he's never once raises his voice. I mean, both men are very measured. Oh yeah, respectful. Stephen looks very on edge and even says, you know, I thought about not coming, you know, I, everyone else says I, I shouldn't have come. Mm-hmm. I thought that I, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be leaving here alive. He thought he was going to show up and Bill might kill him or something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. But perhaps it's because of what else Correct. Stephen thought. <laughs> Bill asked Stephen, you do realize he killed another woman and noted that the other victim, Mrs. Annie Mae Johnson happened to be black. Winston's son acquiesced, saying, Okay, well, maybe he did do that. I don't know. That's something we never discussed. Oh, you didn't discuss all the other women your father murdered and raped? Yeah. Killed Shocking. three, attacked more. Did So, yeah. I mean, it's... And also, he's probably, for his own self-preservation, not going and digging into nah. police files and reading books and stuff. And also, you know, he's only going to get the version that his dad's going to tell him. And if that's yeah. a way to keep a relationship with your dad... Yes, or be able to just live your life. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. Stephen mostly also asked Bill whether they were related to the Genevieve's crime family, as Stephen had been told that Kitty was in the crime family, and that's why she was murdered. Bill was able to unequivocally put that to rest. Yeah, they were not at all related to the mafia. No, but that's another lie Stephen had been fed. So he walks, he goes to this meeting thinking... Bill Genovese of the Genovese crime family. I'm going to get, you know, taken out when I step through the door. And it's just a heartbroken veteran who is confined to a wheelchair. who's just trying to search for answers. Mm -hmm. It's like it's the uh, it's almost like the you build it up in your head again, thinking my dad had to go up against the crime family. It makes me think of is it I'm trying to think of as like. I mean, it's a, a classic tale, right, of having a shitty father, but building him up in your head as a hero sure, or sure. A vi- even a victim themselves. Mm-hmm. While the two men had very different accounts of what led to the rape and murder of Kitty, the stories they each believed had drastically shaped their lives from a young age. Both had gone into careers where they hoped to make a difference. Stephen Mosley chose a profession dedicated to helping others lead a morally rich life and hopefully avoid the same mistakes his father made. Bill admits that his decision to enlist in the Marines was directly influenced by what happened to his sister, becoming obsessed with proving that there are some that will not stand idly by when faced with danger. In an interview with the New York Times, he said, The question of apathy was with me throughout my time in Vietnam, and I came to be known for taking too many risks because I couldn't let anything go without trying to act. Bill's wife tells documentarians in The Witness that his obsession to find out what happened to Kitty is largely tied to what happened to him as a Marine, saying that he needs to know that he didn't lose his legs for nothing. Oh, gut punch. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says time and time again in The Witness that pretty much every decision he made from 16 on after she was murdered was directly tied to the fact that she was murdered and the information they were given about the murder. No one came to help. She yes. was all alone. Everybody heard it. Yeah. Yes. So the fact that he thought his sister had died alone and had been screaming out for help and no one helped her is why he enlisted in the Marines. Mm-hmm. So if the Times had correctly reported 
what really happened that she didn't die alone and that a woman one of her good friends actually came down and held her and she actually died in the ambulance around paramedics and perhaps he wouldn't have even gone to the marines perhaps he wouldn't he would still have both of his legs today yeah it's it's so uh like you said it's a gut punch and it's so heart-wrenching to think about all the small tiny decisions that yeah. led to this and the ripple effects it had through his life Winston Mosley had four kids mm-hmm. and he had a wife, you know, and he had if that woman had to deal with it. Those kids, kids, you know, the grandkids have to mm-hmm. deal with this of how, you know, so you in some sense, it's it's the, the steps we take, the choices we make. And Winston Mosley, in that case, I mean, he for all the control he wanted to have. I mean, he did. I mean, he just impacted everybody's lives, mm-hmm. but he didn't act alone. Right. Because the New York Times was pretty complicit in it as yeah. well. Although Winston refused to meet with Bill, he did send a letter. In it, the killer contradicted the evidence and the account he gave to police, his defense attorney, his wife, and on the stand at trial. He had testified that he had gone out hunting that night, eager for a kill. But in his letter to Bill, he confessed only to being the wheelman to a mafioso named Dominic, who had targeted Kitty that night. Winston described himself as innocently watching as Dominic the mobster attacked Kitty. When Winston asked why he'd done it, Dominic stated Kitty owed him. Winston claimed Dominic then threatened him, telling him if he told anyone about the event, your family will pay. This is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, why? Why, after all those years where you've admitted to multiple people, Mm -hmm. hundreds that I mean, in, in a court of law that. Yes, I am responsible for this. Gave sketches of, of women's houses. Mm-hmm. Details on the killer. No. Then to come back with this bizarre story. Yeah. I mean, do you think it was because he it was another story he made up for his his family? And so he just kind of was keeping this lie going in, in other ways as well. Do you think he was so mentally deteriorated that he started to believe something like this yeah i mean that was part of what they kind of diagnosed him with was that he would retreat into himself into like a fantasy world uh on the one hand i mean clearly he told his son one version was that she was called him a racial Mm -hmm. slur now he's telling the family a different version he all but admitted what he did in the new york times editorial that he wrote so I think it's the grasps of a desperate person, right? His appeals all failed. He wasn't paroled ever, Was looks like not was ever going to be paroled. You know, the Genevieve family was going to put the kibosh on that every time. So, yeah, I think it's the grasps, the last gasp of a dying person that, you know, he's desperate and... Well, that was my other question. Is he, is it all, he knows it's a lie and he's just saying it to try and spend his remaining years outside of a jail cell? I wonder. I, I mean, because they hold his fate in their hands, in mm-hmm. essence. You know, they don't, but they do, right? So I think them saying, oh, we forgive him, you should let him out, would have maybe gone a pretty long way. But they, uh, I, I think there no letter, even a letter saying, yes, I did it, I admit it, probably. I don't think they would have st- no. agreed to the parole, but especially not him coming up with this crazy story, you know, this right. cockamamie lie about a mobster and everything. But 
you know, when you're left alone in a jail cell with nothing but time and thinking, you know, in his mind, he's Genevieve. That sounds Italian. And maybe they're in the mob. That's what it was. It was a mobster. I'll tell him. Yeah. That. You know, it's one thing, A, a B, C thinking, right? One thing leads mm-hmm. to the next to the next. Winston Mosley died at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Danmora, New York, on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81. Upon his death, the New York Times published another article where they once again mentioned the inaccuracies in their original reporting of the Genovese murder. Almost 60 years later, the rape and murder of Kitty Genovese continues to be a leading example of the bystander effect, despite the initial reported events of that night having been proved inaccurate. Still, the reality is, multiple residents of Kew Gardens and the Mowbray did hear Kitty's screams for help and chose to do nothing. And while the number was most certainly far less than 38, any number of people witnessing a rape and murder and choosing not to help the victim evokes confusion, anger, and fear into most people. However, the real reason Kitty may have been left to fend off her attacker on her own is even more problematic. Francis Cherry, author of The Stubborn Particulars of Social Psychology, wrote in 1995, the American social views at the time of Kitty's murder cannot be ignored when discussing the case. Kitty was a woman, a lesbian, and living in an era where it was considered impossible for a husband to rape his wife. The same month Kitty was killed, a judge in Cleveland ruled that, It's all right for a husband to give his wife a black eye and knock out one of her teeth if she stays out too late. According to The Nation. This mindset is reflected in several witnesses' explanation for not wanting to get involved as outlined in the Pelinero book. I figured it was a lover's quarrel and that her man had knocked her down, so my wife and I went back to bed. What was she doing out so late anyway? At one point, I thought maybe a girl was being raped, but if she was out alone at that hour, it served her right. If that girl had been where she belonged, this never would have happened. Cherry argues that the bigger picture isn't that There was an emergency and no one intervened to help. But rather that violence was directed at yet another woman by a man and no one intervened to help. Indeed, even today, the retelling and teaching of this story often fails to mention the aggressive and violent climate at the time towards women and homosexuals, reasons that contributed not only to Kitty's brutal attack, but also to the subsequent inaction by others. Yes, some of those folks... Uh, at the Mowbray said, ah, I saw her staggering around and figured she was drunk and she was out partying that late. Yeah. She had dot, it coming dot, to dot. her. Yep. Yeah. Dot, dot, exactly. Dot. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, multiple people said, I looked out and I heard, you know, thought it was a man and a, a woman arguing and it was a lover's quarrel. So we don't get involved with that. And- mm-hmm. From above, it looked like he was hitting her. The stabbing mm-hmm. looked like he was whacking her. And so people said, oh, you know, we figured he just knocked her down and was beating her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which back then, not something that was going to really ruffle any feathers. When you, have a, when you have a judge saying, you know what, it's fine. If she's <sighs> out too late, she deserves a black eye and a tooth knocked out. Yeah. A judge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was also... You know, I mean, the uh, Times, like we said in the last one, the month before this happened, had put out an article about how homosexuals were taking over the city and we Mm -hmm. should all be uh, be concerned. I think it was like Life Magazine was like, watch out for the homosexuals in the neighborhood. The the Times did well. That Rosenthal is the editor in in chief of. So, you know, I mean, it's all it all gets tied back together. Oh, I think so. And, And, you know, the police... They did. They did a thorough investigation. To their credit, 
knowing that she was in a relationship with Marianne, it wasn't like they said, oh, whatever. Although they did initially think maybe Marianne had something to do with it, but she was pretty quickly cleared, especially there were so many people that goes, oh, yeah, it was a guy in a hat. You know, he was a thinner guy. So they said, oh, we could have been a lady. But some a couple of people saw his face and said, oh, no, it was clearly mm-hmm. a man. But th- at least they took it seriously as far as the investigation. But as far as, yeah, why people don't step in, I think a lot of folks said, oh, it's just a guy whacking on his old lady. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just beating her. That's just fine. That's fine. Even with the... A couple of drunks stumbled out of the bar. Even with the investigation of um or the the questioning of Marianne they asked her completely inappropriate intimate details that have nothing to do with what was going on made her describe the sexual positions that they would use and yeah. i mean That's can you imagine you yeah. the humiliation what does that have to do with anything yeah it's just but that was the climate and the yeah. attitude towards homosexuals at the time and she's outnumbered by two people yes. of authority being asked these questions, and you think to yourself, well, if anything could help, I guess I have to. So she's then being re-victimized yeah. by the people that were supposed to help her. So, mm-hmm. no, I mean, nobody's not at fault here. I think everybody's no. got a little little part to play in this, um, except Kitty, who should be able to walk from her car to her home. Yes, absolutely. Freely. If you want to equip yourself to be more than just a bystander, you can sign up for intervention training with Hollaback a global people-powered movement to end harassment that trains people to take action and to reach across their own identities, to ally with others, and establish a united front against harassment each time we witness it. They currently offer a free training on bystander intervention to stop street harassment, to stop anti-Asian American harassment and xenophobia, and to stop police-sponsored violence and anti-Black racist harassment. You can learn more at iHollaback.org. I was able to so far take the anti-Asian American harassment and xenophobia training and they do offer street harassment and as well as the the new one that's coming out this summer that stops police uh, police sponsored violence and anti-black racist harassment. And they teach you the five D's, which is direct, delegate, document, delay and distract. And so when I was thinking about I happened to go through this training separately from Kitty Genovese. I did it before we selected this topic, but Thinking about the training in this case, people did do some of this. Like, oh, yeah, they directly said, leave that girl alone. That's directly addressing the issue. Delegating is, honey, go call the cops or saying to someone else, if there was anyone down, down there, there wasn't anyone on the street. But you would say, hey, police officer, run over there and help that lady. There was nobody else on the street. Um, And then documenting, they knew people looked at what time it was. They called the police to tell them, hey, this is going on. There was no cell phones back then. Um, And then delay is more like if you're in the moment with someone, you're supposed to you can kind of keep the two people apart and maybe keep somebody keep the harasser around so they can get caught or distract by just asking the victim, hey, do you know what time it is? Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I dropped something. Can you hand me that to try to break up? It just causes confusion. They obviously Mm -hmm. say don't do any. The training is way more thorough than this, but they say your safety is the number one priority because you can't help anybody if you are, you know, killed or hurt or whatever. So, um but they definitely give tactics, and I learned a ton from the training. It's I think it was an hour long, so I did it on my lunch break one day, and it's it really makes you aware that you don't have to. If two people are fighting, you did the right thing, right, Christy? When you saw the people fighting, you didn't go and get in the middle of the melee, but you distracted. You honked on your horn. When that didn't work, you went and you you know you called nine one one. You grabbed another witness. You had other people out there to see it. So 
that's exactly what you should do in a situation where it's not safe for you to run up in between them and, you know, stop mm-hmm. a fight. So I think it's good to be equipped with those, um, situ- you know, with those tools whenever we do find ourselves in a situation of somebody getting harassed in any number of ways that they could. Definitely. Another thing I see on TikTok quite a bit is guys or girls will say, there's a girl over there that's getting harassed by this guy. They're, like there was one where they were um, on a sidewalk. There was one I saw where this this guy was uh, making this girl really uncomfortable at the mall. And the person in the TikTok will say, I'm going to go over there and try and, and get her out of this. And they'll just walk up and be like, hey, how are you? That's exactly it's been what... so long. Yep. And every time the girl who's being harassed immediately knows what's going on and she'll go, oh my gosh, how have you been? I haven't seen you in mm-hmm. forever. That's and one of the say, ones they say. They'll say, do you, my aunt's here. Do you want to go say hi to her? And then the one in the mall, that's what the guy says. And she goes, Aunt Sheila is here? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. And so then they walk off and every time they're like, did you know that guy? And she's like, no, thank you so much. He was freaking me out so bad. You know, and one of them, when the, a girl saw another girl on the sidewalk, she ran over there and did the same thing. And then she was like, they're running back. She's like, do you need a ride? Do you want to get out of here? And the girl's like, yes, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So there are people that, mm-hmm. and they're by themselves. They do have kind of, a lot of times we feel a little more um, in, uh, confident when we've got that phone with us because we know like the camera's documenting everything. Mm-hmm. But there are people that that will help in those ways. There's mm-hmm. a guy, another guy I saw and TikTok, I'm telling you, TikTok does so much good stuff <laughs> for humanity that, that he will um he's got like this kind of deep voice and his whole TikTok is he records one side of a conversation for you as a female to play like people will be like can you do one where if we're being harassed at the gym so it'll it'll he'll do like the ring at the beginning like you're being called oh. and he'll and he'll say like Hey, boo, are you at the gym? Wow. And it'll take pauses. So as the woman, you have to like listen to it and know like kind of your script of how you're going to reply. So you can but, practice? Yes. Yeah, so it's like a one-sided conversation that he, and he'll be like, well, I'm coming. I'm about to be up there. So save me a spot on the treadmill. Mm. And then, you know, so like, and somebody said, well, how do we, how do we do this? You know, if, if we're in this situation, he's like, save the video to your phone and then you can just easily like go to videos on your phone and play it because mm-hmm. he puts the sound effect of the phone ringing and everything in it wow so he so you could go oh, i'm sorry my phone's ringing or yes. like click it wow and then it would just be like him being like hey what's going on where are you at i'll be there in, or are you at the mall i'll be there in a second yeah wow. and then you can yeah he pauses so you can respond and so i'm like that but it's and ideally we would live in a world where we yes, didn't need that and there's thousands of comments that are like thank you so much this is so great you know ideally we wouldn't but it's nice you, that there yeah. are allies that and that's something i would never even thought of mm-hmm. that you know do stuff like that for other people just to help them get out of situations so mm-hmm. there are good people there are lots so. of good people yes you and know? if you are a good person which we think if you're listening you probably are you know learning yes. how to safely and effectively do exactly what what you're talking about of saying oh my gosh you're i you're so there there you are i was looking for you i thought we Mm -hmm. were supposed to meet 10 minutes ago and you like you said the person will go i'm so sorry i'm late yes let's go together like let's walk away now i mean they will gladly uh take the hand so i think you can catch their eye too if you see if you see anyone that you think 
is in an uncomfortable situation and being harassed somewhere, if you just stop for a second and observe mm-hmm. and they look over at you, you know, as a woman, you catch another woman's eye and you see that, like, I need help. Yeah. That, you know, go, if you feel like you're not in danger yourself, mm-hmm. go over there and, and, and help them. You could save their life. Yeah. And there's, and there's safe ways to do it and effective ways to do it. And that's mm-hmm. why I liked, uh, I, it's I H O L L A B A C K dot org. Uh, cause the training was, I mean, I learned a ton. And also, you know, you reiterate, like, I would do that. And they're like, that's good, unless the person doesn't want it. You know, they say, if you mm-hmm. document it, don't go upload it to Facebook immediately. No. Tell the person when the attacker leaves, say, hey, I have a video if you would like a copy of it. If you would like mm-hmm. this, I'll give it to you. Don't, you know, don't put it on social media for the clout, you know, without somebody's permission. Yeah. So stuff like that. Just um, just kind of clarification and reminders and especially, you know, protecting yourselves as well. Yeah. So I'm going to take all of them. That's yeah. a it's a good resource, and we'll we'll link that, of course, in the show notes as well. Well, thank you guys for listening. This was a doozy, yeah. Of uh, too, but I'm thank you again to everyone. Let us know we uh, we needed to research this, and man, in all of the research we did, you guys are right that it's still widely misreported Mm -hmm. so i'm glad that we got the story straight now and we learned a lot yeah still out there too yeah and i I will give one more shout out to the Catherine pelinero book if the two episodes we did was not enough uh that book has got every single possible detail so she's a she was a playwright i read oh yeah so that's that must be why her story was written kind of in that narrative format it's a it's one of the best true crime books i've ever read just because it is it's not rote mechanical it is written quite like prose but rigorously fact-checked and detailed so again get you, get you that book it'll also be in the show notes which you can get at sinisterhood.com and click on episodes blammo right there for you all, all, all right for there. you every single source and every single episode right there for yes you. you can see the 75 articles that we read yes. to give us the information we need for an episode yes We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including our Am I the Asshole and Relationship segments where we read and discuss the best Reddit has to offer. We also have Judge Christie, where Christie lays down the law. We also have the Just No M.I.L. Yes. subreddit we discussed. It's all about... Mother-in-law drama. And I get into my uh, own drama. (laughs) Personal drama. (laughs) And um, there's another Reddit one we've been doing, too. Uh, Well, we... Judge Christie gets some legal questions from Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. They're all all super fun. You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally, and we've just hosted our most recent Q&A with Crowdcast, and it went so well. It was and so much fun. Every, I had so much fun. I, we got some great questions, some great would-you-rathers, It was, and we got to interact with all the people chatting and everything. You got They got to interact with each other through the chat, so it was a ton of fun. I pulled my pants down. You did? Yeah. If you, if, if you, you subscribe you to be a Patreon, you get to see... 
Heather's Abe Lincoln tattoo. And the replay is available to Patreon subscribers at the Rolling the Airwaves here. I'm not I'm not ashamed. I love my art, my body art. <laughs> it looks great. Everyone loved it. For our patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. You've also been asking us about new merch featuring our logo as well as Judge Christie. We can tell you they are in the hopper making their way to the presses as we speak. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos featuring both the new and the throwback logo, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SinisterhoodPod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Erica Perez. Alex Evanson. Aaron Walsh. Deanna Hebb. Marcella Rose. Julia Escamilla. Aaron Leah. Kaylee Coey. Samantha Surma, Nikki Collins, Allie Schubert, Kristen Long, Julia Straza, Carly Richardson, Lindsay, Nin, Letty L, Amy Bryant, Emily Francis, Fulvia Lindsay, Maria Stoika, Jenny Juby, Loran, Kendra Nelson, Kayla Hilliard, Chelsea S. McKinnon, Zoe Ramirez, Jennifer Charkow, Kristen Petrochenko, Laura Malcher, Lucy Warford, Julia Horn, Beth Rutherford, Jennifer Britton, Megan Davis, Meredith Kueck, Shelby, Jenny Luce Coates, Sunny Jonas, Kristen Haddow, Christine Berg, Laura R, M, Sarah M, Lonnie Hicks, Ashley M. Waters, Catherine Machado, Brandon Coffrin, Vert, Ree Marchesault, Victoria Burson, and Joe Lynn. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show, especially during these trying times. We couldn't do it without you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. <laughs>